So David Letterman was interviewing a well-known actor on late night television. And he said, tell me, uh, you're a sex symbol who plays all these roles with these gorgeous women. How does that compare to your real life off screen? And the actor kind of chuckled a bit and he reminded Letterman that he had been married for 20 years. Then he said, here's the difference in a nutshell. In the movies, life is mostly about sex and occasionally about children. Married life is mostly about children and occasionally about sex. (laughs) We're finishing up a series called Modern Family. And last week we talked about sex. Uh, This morning we want to talk about something far more important, and that's children. So parenting, raising kids. Man, parents make a huge difference in the life of their kids. Um, Good parenting gives people a, a foundation on which to build life. And I, I meet people in life who had great parents, and you can tell. And then I, I, I meet people who who's par- were parented in not such a great way, and oftentimes it leaves gaps in the foundation and scars on the kids. That said, the reality is there are no perfect parents. My parents uh, did some great things uh, as parents, and they did some not so great things as parents. Barb and I, my wife, uh, Barb, and I have five kids. They are all uh, um, out of the, well, they're on their own mostly. (laughs) Um, And and we did some great things, and man, did we mess up a lot. Just ask my kids. They can tell you every place we messed up. It's, it's challenging to parent well. And part of the reason it's challenging is we all have a default mode. We kind of learned this dance from our parents in terms of how they parented us. And then we kind of teach that dance to our kids. We fall into that pattern. We parent like we were parented. And that's a hard pattern, a hard dance to break. But the reality is we, we, we can be better dancers. Um, and when we dance well, when we parent well, there is no feeling of satisfaction that I think is greater in life than to know your kids are doing great. Proverbs 15:20 says, a wise son brings joy to his father. And that's true. My son, if your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. Notice the connection of the hearts here. When the, the son's heart is doing well, the father's heart is glad. My inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. My son, if your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. My inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. The father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. So there's no better feeling to hear that your kids are doing well. There also is no worse feeling in the world than when they're not doing well. Um, You know, when something goes wrong for my kids, it just grabs a hold of my heart. And At my stage with the kids out of the house, I have zero control anymore, uh, pretty much. And it just is this angst inside me at times. Now, the reality is you don't, when they're doing well, you don't want to take too much credit. And uh, 
when they're not doing so well, you don't want to take too much blame. It's always a, a mixed bag. Um, there are times when I felt really good about our parenting and times where I knew I'd totally blown it. Uh, you know, I lost my temper with my kids. I yelled at them. I responded poorly. I, uh, sometimes I was unreasonable, unwise. Other times, you know, I haven't done so bad. When we, <laughs> we moved houses a number of years ago, our old house had hollow core doors. They break pretty easily, especially if you put a hand or a fist up against them. <laughs> we, we had to replace five of those. Um, and three of them were because of my kids, you know. I won't tell you what happened to the other two. Um, <laughs> our house was not always the calmest place. Um, so sometimes I felt incredibly guilty about my parenting. Um, but I also figured out that each day is a new day. So, so it's a huge challenge to be a good parent. But there's hope. And by the way, if you're a single parent... I just want to be honest with you. It's true. You have your work cut out for you. All the statistics uh, talk about that. But I know some kids, great kids, who have turned out awesome, who were raised in a single-parent home. Uh, I know some adults who are great adults who were raised in a single-parent home. It takes takes more work and more wisdom because all the responsibility comes back on that single-parent. But but I want you to know this morning, you can do it. Now, you have to develop this great support team around you. And that's the great thing about a church and a community. And hopefully you've picked that up in this series on modern family. It's not just about us. We're families within a larger family of the church. And there's a lot of truth in that notion that it takes a village to raise a child. I think in some ways it takes a church to raise a child. So there's hope. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go to the book of Proverbs. It's a a great place to go to understand principles about parenting. Proverbs was a book that was actually written uh, to help instruct children and young adults uh, to become good leaders. It was a book written for the royalties to help them train up their kids uh, to be the kind of adults they want them to be. That's the intent behind the book of Proverbs. So it's a great place to go for parenting advice. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a parent or your kids are gone, I still think this is a relevant message for you because I believe parenting is a corporate responsibility, at least in the life of a church. Um, The task of raising good kids goes way beyond the family. In fact, I look back on our family and my kids and some of the most influential people that have really built into my kids' lives were teachers and friends and youth workers and and people who were part of our church community. They're what um, some people refer to as satellite adults. Uh, um, And they had a huge impact on my kids. So I really believe that uh, all of us participate in this challenge of parenting. So what I want to do is get three pretty simple principles this morning from the book of Proverbs. There's, there, there's a lot more to say, but I think this lays some foundation and are, they're a good place to start. So first, first principle, we need to train our kids. Proverbs 22 says this, train up a child in the way he should go, 
And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, when you read that, you've got to remember this is a proverb, so it's, it, it, it's not a guarantee. Proverbs are general truths. They're, they're formed out of observing life. And usually, if you look at life and you see a, a child who, who's trained up well, they, they usually stay on the path they were, they were trained to go on. Um, but it's not a promise. And it's not a promise that uh, if you do a good job when they're young, they'll turn out great when they're old. You'll have an influence but it's not a promise. And it's also not an accusation. Some people go to this verse and read it backwards and they say, oh, my child didn't turn out the way I wanted to. They wandered from the path. I must have done a poor job uh, of training them up. Maybe, maybe not. We have to measure our parenting not simply by the product, but by the process. Um, We must... You know, you can do all the right stuff and your kids still turn out wrong because there's so many factors. You don't, you don't control every influence in their life. And, and second, I want you to remember this. If your kids aren't turning out the way you want them to, our worth as people does not ultimately hinge uh, um, on the choices of our children. Right? Right? Ultimately, your kids are responsible for their own choices. Your kids are ultimately responsible for how they turn out. Not you. You have an influence, but the responsibility is theirs. Okay, that said, what, what does it mean to train up? It's an interesting word, this word train up. It was actually uh, refers, the word literally refers to the palate of the mouth. And the idea is they would take a rope and put it into the mouth of a horse to control their wild behavior. So the the word has this notion of of breaking or controlling a wild horse and bringing it into submission. But the word was also used in conjunction with a a midwife. A midwife, when a baby was born, would take some fig paste, put it on their fingers, and put it into the palate of the the little baby, and it would cause a, a, a sucking response. And then they'd hand the little baby to the mom, and it would encourage the child to, to, to nurse. So, so really two ideas in this notion of train up. One is to boundary, that idea of telling no, setting limits, and the other is to cultivate, that's to tell them yes or to develop a taste for something good. And the notion is our kids are, are like moldable clay and we're to mold them into the way they should go. We should set patterns for our children during their early years because those patterns will take root in their lives. Um, We're to teach them things like truth-telling and compassion and kindness and respect, uh, diligence and responsibility. Eventually, if we do that with our kids, they internalize those values. Now, I want you to note the assumption behind what the author of Proverbs, Solomon, is saying at this point. He's assuming that, that children are not little adults. Um, in other words, kids need to be trained. Values are not innate. Maturity is not natural, a naturally developing quality. Um, children don't instinctively know right from wrong. They have to be taught. 
Values have to be communicated. I want to share a quote with you from a book called Ready or Not. And it's a long quote, but it's really important. I really want you to get this because it's really insightful and true, especially in our cultural context. The experts in our culture encourage us to view our children as small adults, rational, autonomous, independent actors who know what is best for themselves and who have no need for adult instruction or supervision. We have lost the notion that childhood is a time of limited competence in which adults prepare the young for maturity and life. Independence, rather than becoming the reward given over time, has become something that our children have come to expect and demand at increasingly younger ages. We should love them, the experts tell us, but we shouldn't think we have much to teach them. Kids are rational, autonomous creatures. We should tell them uh, from their earliest days, we will give you information, you do with it as you see fit, you are a free and self-determining individual, ready or not. It's kind of like, take your hands off, and they'll figure it out. Uh, kids are not little adults. That simply need to be given options. They need to be taught right from wrong. They need to be instructed about the reality of God. They need to be trained in wise decision-making. They need to be educated in the moral arena of life. They need to be given good values. They need to be indoctrinated in a very good sense. They're not born with all of these. And they do not come from a vacuum. The culture and education system tells us we simply need to present them with options and then allow them to make the choices of what to believe and what to accept. But how are they ever to make those kinds of choices and decisions? Where do they get the wisdom and the framework to make moral choices and faith decisions unless we give it to them? We have to teach right and wrong. We have to teach truth from lies. And we have to communicate the reality of God. If when kids become adults and then they want to reject that or disregard it, then they have that right. But children are not adults. We buy the lie of our culture that we can just be laissez-faire with our kids. In fact, that will encourage their little chewers, choosers to make good choices, but that's not true. Kids are like a garden. And, and when you have a garden, you have to cultivate the soil, and, and you have to plant good seed, and you have to pull the weeds, and you have to water the plants. And if you don't, if you just leave a garden to its own devices, all you're going to have is a, a weed patch. And the issue with our kids is the question, who will plant the seeds? Who will cultivate the garden? Is it going to be us? Or, or are we going to let the media do that and the culture do that and just the school system do that? Or are we going to do that? This text is telling us that responsibility is ours. I get asked the question all the time, should I, should I make my kids go to church? The answer to that question is yes! What are you thinking? Yes! Now that means you're going to have to go yourself. <laughs> you have to learn what, and distinguish in life what you can control and what you can't control. I can't control whether my children believe or not but I can control where they place their butts on a Sunday morning. That's easy to control. And by the way, you communicate your values. I, I mean, nobody comes and asks me the question, should I make my kids go to school? Well, yes! Why do you make them go to school? Because you value education. 
Why do you think you should make them go to church? Because you value their spiritual life. You say, well, they don't want to go. Well, kids aren't stupid. They know if they push hard enough, you'll give in. In our family, it was never an option. Never an option. You were in church on Sunday morning. If you had a soccer game, you might play if you could go to church on Sunday night. But church was the value because our spirituality was the value. My kids learned not even to ask the question, do I have to go? They figured it out. It's not optional. They never asked me if they had to go to school either. We communicate our values by what we ask of them. In our house, that was the rule, by the way, until they got 18 and moved out. I can't control what you believe, but it can control where you're at. See, the whole point, the, uh, the first assumption is they're not little adults. They have to be trained. And the other assumption behind that is this idea that we have to be intentional in our parenting. Yeah. We need to make it a goal to parent well, because if we don't make it a goal, if we don't educate ourselves, if we don't learn how to parent, we don't become, uh, you know, these little kids don't come with an instruction booklet. You have to learn. So you have to be intentional, because if you're not, then you just parent on the backstroke, and you parent by default like you were parented. One of the things Barb and I did that was really helpful to us is we would go to, to people in the church who, who I thought were doing a great job parenting, and we asked them, tell, tell us what, what, what you're doing, because it's working. We went to uh, one of the guys who, who has gone home to heaven now, Dr. Shelley, great kids, and I asked him, I said, Dr. Shelley, what's the key to parenting? Well, and he gave me this great piece of advice. He said, look, with my kids, I wanted them to understand what it meant to be a Shelley and the values in that. And I thought, man, I, that's great. I want my kids to understand what it means to be a Lolo. And then I had to figure out what that means. <laughs> so it was this great exercise of sitting down and figuring out what are the values that I want to communicate to my kids? What do I want to be, them to be like? And I, I have a list in my yearly goals that says here's the values I want to see in my kids. It was intentional. I went to another couple... Brian Penner, and I asked him, I said, what, what's the key to parenting? He told me, he said, Nick, the key to parenting uh, is camping. <laughs> and he's right. We went out and bought a tent trailer. And, and it was really old and uh, barely still worked, but we had this tent trailer. And we took our five kids camping, and it was absolutely horrible. And... <laughs> living in a tent with seven people, and it was absolutely wonderful. We'd go for a week, and it was some of the... They were right. The key to camp, parenting is camping because you get this intense time with your kids that is just, just marvelous. But you got to think about your parenting. One of the things that my kids hate, hated this, they still hate it, uh, um, but we made house rules. We wrote them down. Two things good about that. One is we had to figure out what the house rules were. And it covered chores and responsibilities and allowances and when you could date and when you couldn't date and all this kind of thing. So my kids knew from the get-go what the expectations were. The great thing is we had to figure it out and then communicate it to them. They didn't always like it. But, but at least we were on the same page, so it was intentional. 
So, so to train up your kids takes a bit of work, but you have to be intentional about it. So he says, train them up in the way they should go, and they will not turn from it when they get old. Now the word old here literally means beard, but it's, it's not a promise that when somebody gets old in their 70s or 80, they'll come back to God, and that's how we read this text. The notion of a beard here is when a, a kid gets old, when he starts having facial hair. In other words, when he gets mature, if you build into a little child when he gets to puberty and beyond, when he begins to mature, he'll stay in that way. But the word in here means according to his way, literally, keeping with. So the notion is that every child has a bent or a disposition or a temperament. And, and good parents figure out what their kid's temperament or bent is. And then they raise their kids according to that bent, that personality. Um, that was one of the hardest things for us to learn is to figure out that our kids are different. You would think with coming from the same genes, everything would be the same with my kids. And they're night and day, every one of them. We had to figure out what worked. So when it came to curfew, we never set a curfew. curfew. We, we told our kids, I need to know where you're at, who you're with, and what you're doing. And if I know those, then we can talk about when you have to be home. And that worked great with Sarah, my oldest, and Danielle, my second oldest. And then we got to Chelsea. Now, Danielle and Sarah are pretty structured. Chelsea is this free spirit. She's the most winsome person I know to be around. She's just lovely. And no bound, you know, no structure in her life, doesn't like that. That did not work for her. (laughs) She needed a definite time. So I I finally had to figure that out. The only thing we have to do with her is say, you have to be home at 11 or 11.30 or or 7 o'clock, wherever it was. But she needed the boundary to press against. She She was different than my other kids. How do you adapt to your kid? How do you figure them out? How do you know their personality and their interests? Uh, um, you got to know. You got to find out what works for discipline with them. One of the things I discovered early on is spanking did not work with Max. He didn't care. He says, okay, thank you. <laughs> so I had to find different buttons to push for him to discipline him. He was just a different kid. All our girls played soccer, and it was this great experience. We put Max on the soccer field. And you could see him standing in the back, not watching the game, but doing the, he was playing Power Rangers and watching Butterflies and had no concept that soccer is this game that you play with people. It just didn't work. So we figured soccer isn't this thing. Maybe music is the thing. So we put him in piano lessons. And the teacher came to us and said, don't waste, your time, don't waste my time and your money because he ain't going to play piano. <laughs> and to this day, Max hates music. Now, now don't mishear me. Max is incredibly smart. I mean, he, he's a mechanical engineer, and he's doing awesome. He just doesn't like music. So finally figured out he likes taekwondo. You know, it was the kicking thing, I guess. I don't know. But he got his black belt in taekwondo. That... That worked for him. One of the favorite phrases I used with my kids is, life is not fair. And it took me a while to realize that to treat my kids well, I didn't have to treat them all the same. 
Now, I love them all equally, but I treat them very differently because they're individuals with unique bents and personalities. Train up your child in their way that they should go and they will not depart from it. So second principle. How do we do that? Well, second of all, we, we need to provide both love and limits. Uh, Proverbs fifteen seventeen talks about this notion of love. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. That Proverbs is saying, look, what's going to make the difference in your kid's life is not how much stuff you give them. That's not the key. Getting them everything they want, making life easy and comfortable for them, letting them do every activity under the world, that is not the key. That's the fattened ox. You can have all that stuff, but it doesn't matter if you don't love them. You've got to love your kids. Dr. Renee Spitz, a New York physician, um, reported on a test that was conducted in South America a number of years ago. They took 239 kids. These were institutionalized children, and they studied them for over a period of five years. They split the group. Half the kids they put in what was called the nursery, both, and the other half was in the foundling, and both these two environments were exactly the same in terms of, of food and comfort and all the accoutrements. But in the nursery, they were given a, a healthy amount of loving affection. And in the foundling, they were not. Kids were put in there when they were three months old. In two years, in the foundling, they found that uh, the emotionally starved kids were not able to speak or walk or feed themselves. With one or two exceptions in a total of 91 children, those who survived were human wrecks. The mortality rate was startling. In the nursery, not one child was lost through death. In the foundling, there was a 37% mortality rate. Now, that's an incredibly unethical experiment, but it's something we should learn from. And in a very real sense, we either love or we perish. Love is absolutely essential for human development. One child development expert cited other studies that indicate that people who grow up become uh, healthy, well-adjusted adults, those who do can almost always look back to one parent who loved them irrationally. I like that phrase. People who perpetually struggle through life and do not become well-adjusted adults who sink into extremes of depression or crime or hyperachievement usually cannot recall being irrationally loved by either parent. The researcher concluded that in order to grow up normal, every human being has to be loved abnormally. You have to love your kids. What's that mean? That means it means that you have to cultivate a relationship with your kids. Uh, uh, um, it, it doesn't happen automatically because you exist in the same house. It happens when, when you engage, when you spend quality and quantity time together. And, and you've got to do it now because life lies to us. It's far more transitory than we realize, and your family is transitory. 
I thought when I was raising kids, man, this was going to go on forever. And, and you know what? In a blink of an eye, it was gone. Not only were they out of diapers, they were out of grade school and they had graduated from, from, from high school and were gone in college. And I go, what, what, what happened? And then I began to realize, you know, I'm never going to have a three-year-old meet me at the door with arms up saying, Daddy, that's gone. Like that. And I know how hard it is when you're in the midst of, of having little kids, how much work it is, the day never ends, you just can't wait until you're through it, and you don't have to buy diapers anymore, and you get some of your life back. Don't miss what you have. Because it is hard, but it's also awesome. And as you raise your kids, there, there's got to be an emotional connection. It doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or, or not. You can't be emotionally distant with your kids, and you can't be relationally lazy. I know, man, I, I by nature am an introvert. You know, my idea of a great day is home alone. I mean, Seriously. That's not an excuse with my kids. When I'm around my kids, they, they, they got to be it. I have to engage. I have to, it's not an option. Edward O'Connor, in his novel, The Edge of Sadness, describes a father who, who, who lacks uh, warmth. He says, my father didn't drink, much less get drunk. I don't think he ever looked at a woman besides my mother. All of, the, all of us ate three good meals a day and had no holes in our shoes. He had all the domestic virtues, you see, except that it was hell on earth to live with him. Can't be that way. I like what Zig Ziglar says. He says, when I see the poster of the 10 most wanted list, I often wonder what would have happened if they had been made to feel wanted earlier. So on the one hand, you've got to provide love. But on the other hand, you need to provide boundaries, discipline. Um, Proverbs 22.15 Folly is bound up in the heart of the child but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Do not, 23, do not withhold discipline from a child if you punish him with the rod he will not die. He who spares his rod hates his son but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You know, people come to these verses and they get so caught up on the issue of whether you should spank a child uh, or you should use a literal rod and they, they end up missing the, the point. Um, the Bible here is not encouraging you to beat your kid with a stick. That's not the idea. Rod here is used metaphorically. It's the rod, not a rod. And the rod is pointing to this notion of authority and accountability. It was often a stick that you would use to give boundaries and keep things in line. And, and, and what he's saying is you've got to provide discipline, the rod, this, this sense of boundaries and authority in, in your, your, your child's life. Here's the point. Kids need limits. Why? Well, think of the nature of the kid. On the one hand, they're created in the image of God. That's what makes them valuable. It's like a painting's worth is, is found in, in the artist, right? They're in the image of God because God's valuable. He puts value on them. They're not valuable because they're intelligent or beautiful or any of those. They're valuable because they're created in His image. But on the other hand, they're fallen, right? They're sinners. They're broken. 
And kids come into the world that way. You know, if you want proof, just look at a a little baby. Why in the world would a little baby think 3 a.m. is a great time to eat? Because they're fallen. It goes way beyond that. So kids need limits. The reality is all of us need limits. Have you ever been on State Bridge that goes across the canyon in southern Colorado? How would you feel if on that bridge there were no guardrails? Wouldn't make one bit of difference in you driving across. I mean, when's the last time you hit the guardrail? But man, would you be nervous? Well, what if we go over the edge? Uh, well, that, that's because we need boundaries in life. And that's true with little kids. They, did, they had this daycare center that didn't have a fence around the outside. They hadn't put it up yet. And they noticed when they sent the kids out to play, they would all congregate in the middle of the little playground and they wouldn't wander around. No boundaries. They eventually got to the place where they put up the fence around the daycare center and the property. And lo and behold, they'd put the kids out. Now the kids would go everywhere and explore because there's boundaries. Your kids need boundaries. There has to be limits and consequences and responsibilities and accountability. And here's the thing. You can be loving and still have strict boundaries. In fact, it's unloving not to give them boundaries. And what that means is we have to set up boundaries in terms of decency and morality with our kids and enforce them and hold them responsible for their behavior and let them experience the consequences of their behavior. Our job is not simply to enhance our kids' self-esteem. Now, I think it's important to have kids have a good self-concept. And the good self-concept is accurate. Self-esteem is just trained to make your kids feel good about everything. And all that does is produce failures who feel good about failing. There's a difference between a healthy self-concept and just blatant self-esteem. You have to ask your kids and make, in a sense, your kids conform to the basic rules of morality. The problem is, it takes work to discipline your kids, both in terms of time and intention and emotion. Right, because we're afraid that if we discipline our kids, our kids won't like us. And we get in this tension between being our kids' friends and having our kids' respect. And hopefully you can do both, but if you have to choose, always err to the side of respect. And that's hard. I remember the first time... (laughs) First time I disciplined Sarah, we were sitting at a table. She was just a little kiddo, still in diapers. And, and next to the table that we were eating at was a plug that was up high. And she reached out and she put her finger in the plug. And I just instinctively said no and, and hit her hand. And she looked at me and she could not believe it. And her eyes got really big and, and her little lip began to quiver. <laughs> and she went, oh. And I felt like such a schmuck but she never put her finger in a socket again now, I'm not saying that was the best way to discipline but, but it takes a willingness to say you know you're not going to like me for a moment but there's things you cannot do 
we have to demand that our children act like they will have to act in future successful relationships with future employers, with future co-workers, with future families, with future neighbors, and God himself. They will not put up with rudeness or selfishness or, or extreme sloppiness or dishonesty or disloyalty or irresponsibility or tantrums or chemical abuse. They do. That's not how life works. So why should it work that way in our families? There's a good uh, illustration I ran across that helps with this. This is parents up here. And this is kids down here. And it's this notion that uh, when, when a child is born, the parent takes on all responsibility and all control. Right? And there's very little trust. Right? Because you can't trust a little infant. They don't know anything and you take total responsibility and control for them. But the goal in parenting is actually not to raise good kids. The goal in parenting is to raise a responsible adult. And the way you raise a responsible adult is over the course of bringing them up, you transfer responsibility and control to the kids as they become more trustworthy. When we treat them as little adults, we give them way too much responsibility and control too early. When we're helicopter parents, we step in and don't give them responsibility and control because we don't make them face their consequences for their decisions. And the idea is by the time they're 18, they have all responsibility and control for their life because now they're legally an adult. Guess what? They do have responsibility and control of their life. The question is, how do you get there? And how do you have the wisdom to know when to transfer the responsibility and control? So one area, doing laundry. We transferred responsibility and control for laundry to our kids at the moment they could reach the knobs. And for Paige, our youngest, Barb got a stool. (laughs) You know why? Because she started finding clean clothes in the dirty laundry bag because somebody didn't want to put them away. And she said, this is stupid, and I'm the one who's being stupid. So she taught our kids to do laundry. It's amazing what kids can do when they don't have any clean clothes. You can wash them or you can wear them dirty. But if you smell, you're not going to be around me. All our kids know how to do laundry. All our kids know how to cook. All our kids know how to change a flat tire. Because they have to be responsible, responsible adults. Now the key is this issue of trust. And we get confused on this issue of trust. We think trust is unconditional, and it's not. Love is unconditional. I'm going to love my kids no matter what. But trust has to be earned. And I told my kids this. I always love you. I don't always trust you. Why don't you trust me? Because you're not trustworthy. You have to earn trust. You earn trust by following through and being responsible and facing the consequences and telling the truth. 
own. And trust is the key to any relationship. So I didn't discipline my kids a lot unless they broke trust. And then all hell broke loose. Because I figured, especially when they lied to me, when I figured out they were lying to me and I caught them, I figured there was probably 10, 15 other times they lied to me and I didn't catch them. So, so I came down on them like a ton of bricks when they violated trust. Because I wanted them to know that's the one thing you can't do. So this line doesn't go like this. It goes like this. But in the end, you want them to be responsible adults. So, you train your kids. That means to love them irrationally and give them good limits and boundaries. The third principle is, in the end, they catch who we are. What I'm saying is, in the end, they're going to be a lot like you. This is the assumption behind Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. Why? Because they become blameless like he's blameless. Jesus teaches the same principle in the New Testament. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Or Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Now, now notice he said, look, impress them on your children. He's not saying have family devotion, sit them down, make them read their Bible. He's not saying any of that. He, he said impress them on your children. How do you do that? Talk about them. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, what are you saying? In the context of life, have your love for God because you love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. Have it so integrated into you that it just oozes out of you in every part of daily life because when that happens, you'll be talking to them all the time because that's who you are. And his point is, they're going to become like you. If you love God, they will love God. And if you don't love God, and if you don't live like you love God, they will never catch it. Let them see what's going on in your heart. If you love God first, that's one of the best things you can do for your kids. There's a national study of youth and religion by a Notre Dame professor named Christian Smith interviewed over a thousand kids over a 14 year period and tracked their development you know what his conclusion was from that study parents matter most he says you teach you do not teach them a set of beliefs but simply a way of life parents with a vibrant and lived out faith tend to have children who have and keep a vibrant lived out faith parents are huge absolutely huge, nearly a necessary condition for a child to remain strong in his or her faith into adulthood. He concludes, without question, the most important pastor a child will ever have in their life is a parent. Ultimately, what you are will be given to your kids. So the key is to be the kind of person you want your kids to be.
You know, sometimes we focus so much on technique that we forget that ultimately it's about substance. It's who you are that matters most in the life of your kids because that's what they catch. And it's frightening to think that you mark your kids simply by being yourself. <laughs> we went to hear Foster Klein speak. He wrote the book, uh, Parenting with Love and Logic. Great stuff, by the way. We're waiting for this profound insight, and he says, here, let me give you the bottom line to start with. Here's the bottom line. When your kids are 30, they'll be a lot like you. And he's right. They'll be a lot like you because that's what you give away. So train your kids. Love them irrationally. Give them a great set of limits. And remember, most likely, they'll be a lot like you. And what about those who have wandered from the path? That breaks your heart. But I, I, I want to give you a word of hope this morning. The story's not over. And God is still at work. And do you realize that God lost his kids? Us, humanity, we went our own way. But he's winning them back. The story's not over. There's always hope. Um, we're going to have a time of reflection um, and sharing communion this morning uh, this series has been challenging on lots of levels so we wanted to give you a few moments to sit and reflect and think through the issues that were raised with modern family uh, they'll be on the screen to help you think through that and then uh, let me give you some time and then I'll come back up and we'll proceed in participating in the Lord's Supper so take a moment and reflect Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The servers would come. When you're ready, I invite you to come and break a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. And then as you eat that, you are making a proclamation about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're proclaiming that he has died for you. Come when you're ready.